isn't that kind of a game. Innovations of version one, version two, anybody who's played this game successfully will tell you this, right? So the notion is what an entrepreneur needs to know is their advantage is, is their ability to widen the portfolio, take multiple shots on goal because risk and reward is less odious to a company that doesn't have to defend you know, their share price and you know, figuring how to get their another billion and a half out of whatever that company's worth. That's their advantage. And diversity is their key advantage. And if you're an American, that's the only real advantage you have. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part one of our new mini-series, the Creative Mindset mini-series with Jeff and Stanley DeGraff. Guys, thanks for making time. Thanks for having us on, Jess. So can you give us the, the quick elevator pitch on, on each of your backgrounds? Stanley, why don't you start? Oh, we're married together, obviously, to each other, and we've been married for a while, but we he is a professor at the University of Michigan, and I run our consulting practice, um, which is called the Innovatrium in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Yeah, okay. there's a little more to that. We've been at this for a long time, 30 years. We've consulted with over half of all the Fortune 500 at the senior executive level, uh, over 100 countries, almost every particular kind of area. And we were really one of the first groups to build these very robust innovation ecosystems that connect all the dots between the academy, the military, the government, big, particularly very big businesses is what we really focused on. And before, before that, before I became a professor at Michigan, I'm one of the people that built Domino's Pizza. So I originally retired when I was 29. That didn't last very long because people like, like me like to build things. And that's what brought me to Michigan, where I've been for the past 31 years. And we've been married for a very long time. <laughs> so not recent. We we kind of know how to work together. <laughs> so, and, and what was your role at Domino's at the time? And that's where I got the title, the Dean of Innovation. My role was anything that Tom Monahan wanted me to do. So one of my first projects was the Pope came to America in 1986, how to build a mobile satellite network, which didn't exist at the time, in order to cover the Pope. So we did, and eventually sold that network to a fledgling company in Connecticut called ESPN, right, which nobody had heard of at the time. And I worked on something called the 007 system, which actually started as something called AppleNet, which, you know, its grandchild is called iTunes. So I worked on a lot of stuff that the guy who was very visionary wanted, but there really wasn't a place to get it done. That's right. Well, let's jump right into it. Let's for for part one here. Let's talk about this uh, word you don't hear a lot: creativizing. Yeah. Can you, so, can you jump in? Yeah. Here? One of the things that's funny is, you know, I, I'm a, the term is a nilogism. It means it's a made up or coined term. It's a it's it's like you know winterizing or or martinizing, and and I like the term because it really says that sort of anybody can take an ordinary thing, creativize it and make it extraordinary. Sort of taking the, you know, the kind of special nature of creativity out of it. And one of the things I noticed very early in my career, I was really lucky. I was one of the last graduate students of Rudolf Arnheim. Now, if you know anything about design thinking, design thinking really comes, uh, it's not this recent thing people write about. It comes from the University of Berlin in the 1910s, the guy named Max Bertheimer. 
And he has two very famous students. One's Rudolf Farnheim, who gives us the term visual thinking. And the other is uh, Kurt Lewin, who gives us positive psychology. I just happen to be the last student of the one. And what, what fascinated me about Arnheim was he realized that creativity was an ordinary function of the mind, that it was really part of uh, what are called cognitive inquiry strategies. It was part of the way normal people think. And somehow we made it somehow extraordinary. So what I wanted to do was give a term to let everybody know that they're naturally creative, but, but there are different types of creativity. So think of it like being right-handed or left-handed. You're going to have differences. And I wanted them also to think about that you don't have to be Steve Jobs to be a creative person. So creativizing is kind of taking your, your, the normal things you do and making them special. Now, well, yeah, go ahead. Well, just a couple things about this. It seems to me that one of the things that that's uh, happening these days is there's kind of two, two opposites that go on when it comes to creativity. The first is there's kind of a lot of self-help books that says everything is creative. Well, you know, if you if somebody went around the campfire and played, you know, something that they wrote on the guitar for you, we're really not going to be able to compare that to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. There's kind of a difference, you know, and you're going to see this, you know, if you sat in your physics class in high school next to Einstein or played basketball with Michael Jordan, you're going to realize that there are differences in sort of the level in which uh, in which creativity. So one is everybody isn't isn't the same level of creativity in the same way that's nonsense and the research suggests that but the other side of it says that the only types of creativity that matter are things that really produce real valuable outcomes and this is kind of the classic business school thing right and i'm one of the first people that taught a creativity class michael ray was really the kind of founder of this at stanford but um that's not true either you know there's a lot more to life than just uh you know hitting the button and making money out of it so I tried to create a term, or we tried to create a term, to put it kind of in the middle of that. I love it. Well, you guys have a couple of stories here. Can we, can we talk about the the Halloween costume, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> so I I grew up without a lot of money. I grew up in a HUD house, right? So I have a lot of brothers, and, and uh, I have a sister, but a big family, nice big Midwestern family. And uh, Halloween came around, and I did not have, well, we did not have money to buy me the classic Bugs Bunny mask, you know, with the crappy, you know, with the crappy rubber band uh, behind it. And my dad, I've always thought was one of the, is most, one of the most imaginative people I've ever met. He's 87. He's still alive. He's still an amazing guy. And what he did was he said, okay, I'm going to, we're going to make a Halloween costume. And what, why he's a creativizer is you see in ordinary things, something extraordinary. So for example, we had a bucket that was upside down. It was kind of a, a tin, the old tin buckets. And it was clear that it was sort of uh, heading towards the junk pile. So he took, you know, a saw and we kind of carved a visor out of it. And then he put aluminum foil around it. So it was all shiny. And he took a, took a feather from the feather duster and I had a pool. And he just, you know, he made out of a piece of molding he was going to throw away. He carved the end of it and painted it silver. To make a long story short, in about an hour, I went from being the poor kid who couldn't afford a Halloween costume to, I won the, you know, they used to have the parades in the old days. I'm an old guy, right? When you go around, I won the best costume for the second grade. And what I've noticed over the years is that there's a lot of people like my dad. A lot of them don't have money. A lot of the most creative people you ever meet are poor, right? And they're, they're able to see in something that maybe the rest of us see as junk, some real potential to do something amazing. They're able to think differently. Yeah. So thinking about Thinking about this idea, where does that lead you, specifically, let's say, talking to entrepreneurs? 
Yeah, one of the problems with, with creativity and entrepreneurs is there's something called habit-bound thinking, dominant logic. And you're seeing it everywhere right now. Let me give you just a perfect example of this. You know, the universities are all going to the same people they've always gone to. They're making the same, you know, sort of uh, hierarchical decisions about how they're going to open. We're not we're not talking to different kinds of people who would have some very different ideas about what you could do with empty hotel rooms or certifications or connecting into, you know, other types of communities and, and, and uh, material like your own that's here. And you can see this vividly in the COVID-19 response. The hierarchical systems for innovation completely failed across the board. This, this, by any objective measure, was a categorical failure. But what you saw was these groups of people that had a line of sight to each other. Some were academics, some were at Big Pharma, a whole bunch of them were, in, were entrepreneurs in biotechs that maybe had some equity positions in Big Pharma. And very quickly, they thought about the idea very differently. They thought that it's not going to be these big sort of monolithic government structures that are going to organize us. We're going to organize, and then we're going to tell the government what we need, which is exactly what happened. So typically, the old tries to assimilate the new, right? And what happened with COVID is the new assimilated the old. And this now, think of it this way. It used to be eight and a half years for drug discovery. It's, people are saying it's going to be nine months. Your, your listeners know it's not. It's going to be about 14. But the notion is, can you imagine going from eight and a half years to 14 months, what that does to drug discovery? These are creativizers. These are people think very differently about the aspect. And this is really playing to entrepreneurs' strengths. The problem entrepreneurs have is they believe that they're going to follow the playbook that the big incumbents have, which is a terrible mistake. What do you think they should be doing instead? I think what they should be doing is they should be taking those opportunities because they're small and they have less to lose. And they should be diverging. So think of it like a venture capitalist. You know, you're from this field. You know, great venture capitalists never bet one horse to win. They bet stables, right? They bet stables to show. So you give everybody a little bit of money and a little bit of time, and you greatly diversify the portfolio. You accelerate the failure cycle. And what you're trying to do is be, it's because you don't, you're not totally bought into that you have the solution. You know, these guys who walk around and say, go big and go home. I love recessions because they all go home. You arrogant SOB, go home, right? Innovation isn't that kind of a game. Innovation's a version one, version two. Anybody who's played this game successfully will tell you this, right? So the notion is what an entrepreneur needs to know is their advantage is, is their ability to widen the portfolio, take multiple shots on goal because risk and reward is less odious to a company that doesn't have to defend, you know, their share price and, you know, figuring out how to get their another billion and a half out of whatever that company's worth. That's their advantage. And diversity is their key advantage. And if you're an American, that's the only real advantage we have. We're the most heterogeneous society on the planet, maybe in the history of the planet, right? So our advantage is those differences. And we need, and small companies need to take advantage of it. And a lot of them do. But some of them, when they get into being an entrepreneur, get stuck in habit-bound thinking. Yeah, you look at who the business media idolizes, and there's this big temptation to try to be like them, right? Or do you think that like... Like, you know, to try to, like in MySpace, we're, we're getting ready to start this real estate investment trust, right? And so it's easy for me to want to be like Blackstone or somebody like that, right? Yep. But it's easy for me to want to be like Blackstone now, not when Blackstone and Blackstone started, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, that's the big challenge. People are always late to the party, right? That's, that is the fundamental thing. You know, the, 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 the value contrarian investment thing is played out. You know, Buffett and Munger did it, right? Done. You know, the speculating, the, you know, the sterling is done. Soros did it. 
And if you look at innovation, there's a ton of this. Uh, I was, when I was very young, I was an advisor at Apple, what's called AIS, Applied Integrated Systems. I was an advisor to Steve Jobs. So I was really very young. I see all these people trying to be Steve Jobs. Well, that that's over. That's, you know, or, or Jack Welch, I was an advisor. To, that's over. And so what what it really comes down to is this, Jess. It's not about what you want to do. Let's just let's take that off the table. That's kind of narcissistic. That's self-help stuff. Oh, you can be anything. Oh, really? You know, tough it out, Tinkerbell. Come on. You know, it's about what are you designed to do? What is it that you have a natural ability, something unique that no one else has? And are you willing to play to that strength? That, you know, so if you get an email from me, you'll see things signed, vision, courage, freedom. And courage is probably as important as vision and freedom. Are you courageous enough to try it? Yeah. Well, Stanley, can you talk about growing up in Indonesia and repurposing and, and some of those kind of ideas? Oh, because we, we're, well, the thing, I think the point is that all of us create in different ways. And most of us do creative things in small ways every day, you know, maybe every day by the time you get up and then until you go to bed and you don't really think about it. But it's just a matter of like looking at things in a new way. And Jeff was talking about habit bound thinking. So it's about how can you look at situation how can you look at an item how you can look at something else and then see a different purpose or a different you know a different way of doing things from it like how do you find opportunities i think that's that's maybe a better way to do it and growing up well yes i so i came here when i went to school at the university of michigan so i grew up in indonesia and you know it's 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 not it's it's a developing country, and I know it's doing really well right now. But I mean, there's a lot of things that people don't have, right? It's a it's a very the lifestyle, and it's quite different from what we have over here. But the thing is, people get creative. So if you don't have a plate, that's not a big deal. You can you can you know use a banana leaf as your plate. You know you can use like a leaf as your spoon. You can use you can use, you know, different reeds and put a, you know, hollow out the inside and you can make that into a straw and different. It's just a matter of like, there's really, there's maybe no, it's almost as if there's a, there's an idea that you can't just say you can't do it because you don't have it. You can always figure out a way to do something. I guess that's, that's what I'm trying to say. I was always stunned to see an industrial building going up. First time uh, I was in Indonesia, like this is over a quarter of a century ago. And realizing that the foundation material is bamboo and saying they're building these huge buildings that are made that, that well, the foundation is actually, see, I don't know if you know, Indonesia has a lot of um, mountains and a lot of volcanoes. So we had a lot of earthquakes growing up. And so bamboos, so, so I think buildings in Japan also kind of built so that the foundation kind of moves sideways. But we don't do that in the United States. That's why we have right terrible earthquakes. You know, we have a really terrible disaster there. So what they actually found in Indonesia is that bamboo is an incredibly strong material and it's widely available everywhere. And they actually create, it's called, I think it's called the chicken feet foundation. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sh quite sure exactly how it architecturally works. But... <laughs> What's interesting though, when but you go, have, you know, yeah. they have like bamboos and shit, yeah. but the thing about it is it moves with the earth. So when the earthquake happens, the house doesn't just sit still and then it kind of collapse. It kind of moves with the earth. You know, as you guys are talking, I'm just thinking about like, you know, I moved out here to the mountains up by Park City, Utah, and we came here so we could go snowmobile snowboarding, you know, snowmobile up, snowboard down, right? 
and or like in the summers we go dirt bike on the the trails through the national forest here they're like these dirt bike specific single track trails right and inevitably something breaks you know there's motors involved and testosterone and (laughs) gasoline and so something's gonna break right and like you have to get super inventive of like how are we gonna get home right right? and and it's like dealing with what you've got because getting not getting home is not an option right and i think about how often like you know, the finance industry is so crampled of lawyers telling you what you can and can't do all the time. And I mean, my, my one business partner laughs at how often I want to, I want to differentiate. So we want to do something different. And the lawyer's answer is like, you can't. Right. And so I just learned to start asking, how can we, instead of asking, can we start asking, how can we? And like the human brain does have a natural effect of like answering the questions it's asked. Right. And Jess, you're right on it. That's what creativizing is. How can we? It's you know, I want to tell a story of your dad because your dad is so great at this. Well, I would just, I'm, it's a funny story. One, I, won't, I don't want to go there, but what's interesting to me, picking up on Stanny's story and then picking up on what you're saying is when you go to other parts of the world where they don't have a lot, people have portfolio lives. They don't have one job. They have a bunch of jobs. It's like the old Mary Poppins, the original one where, you know, the Bert, the chimney sweep is a chimney sweep and he's a draw, you know, he's a screever and he's... That's 87 different things. Well, you know, that's part of putting together a creative life. You know, you have a portfolio life. And that includes things that are not just for money, but they're also enlivening. So things that you do for your church, things that you do for to, to feed your artistic soul. I think that's a, a really important thing. And just what you said, I think one of the things that, that people forget is that all, in, in fact, this is true of all animals. I don't know if you know this, but we used to think when I came up, that the only things that were creative were people. Now we know that new Chaldean crows are creative. We know pigs are creative. We know that octopi are, are creative. We're, we're learning there's a whole bunch of things that are creative, but there are higher orders of creativity. And part of the way the neocortex or the front part of your brain is designed or the second part of your brain, it's actually designed to do that. And that's part of the reason we've survived, right? So all I'm trying to do or all we're trying to do is say there's a part of normal uh, you know, activities that when you when you give up on the habit bound thinking, when you give up on the what's called the dominant logic of trying to solve something, you see things. And the problem is, you we've all been in that meeting where everybody is really just circling around the answer that they want to be the answer. The great news about recessions and plagues is think about it like a bell curve. The farther you move into a crisis, the more risk and reward is reversed. That's why innovation is a down cycle phenomena doesn't happen when things are great. It happens when things really suck. Think about it. People quit drinking. You know, this is when all the great inventions happen, right? Well, the problem is the only, the re, I, I like to tell people, forget the 80-20 rule. It's a stupid rule anyway. It's an engineering rule. We're people. Remember the 20-80 rule. It's easier to change 20% of your organization 80% than it is to change 80% of your organization 20%. Because if you go to the edges of the bell curve, right, the risk of trying something radical and the reward of staying your at is reversed. If you don't believe that, go look at what Apple was trading at in 1997. It's a company I've been associated with for years. It was trading below $5 a share, right? The first trillion-dollar company in the world, everybody needs to get this, was trading below $5 a share. And the reason it became the first trillion-dollar company is because it was trading below $5 a share. It was all beige boxes up to then and clones and how are we going to deal with Motorola and all this other crap. So the notion is, if you start thinking about where creativizing is most likely to happen, it's not in the middle of the bell curve. And unfortunately, business schools are mostly about the middle of the bell curve. 
right? Or, you know, when you start talking about big, you know, big private equity, middle of the bell curve. That's not where it's going to happen. Just like with we talked about with COVID, Indonesia, it's going to happen at the edges. Yeah, it is interesting too how like when things are bad or when there's when there's a big crisis, like how that status quo has a harder time drowning the new ideas and the crazy ideas, right? Right. And so you can see that in, the, we don't want to get into this on this, on this, uh, this podcast, but you can see that in political milieu. You can see politically what goes on. And there's two forms of conflict that almost always anticipate innovation. The first form, unfortunately, is destructive, right? And that creates collateral damage and old institutions are torn down in the worst way because it's reactive. We don't have a, a way forward. But just if you look at the 21 places in this country that produce almost all the intellectual property, what you're going to find is they're more, they're more diverse than the adjacent areas significantly. I live in one. I live in Ann Arbor, right? If you look at Ann Arbor, it's venture capital per person, top five every year, top five. Here's the issue. The issue is when people are different and they don't agree, it produces constructive forms of conflict, positive tensions, differences. And that's why innovation comes out of those, because they're not doing things the same way. We're trying to come up with a third way or a better way. And again, I come back to COVID's a great example, right? So this is going to be the big challenge whenever we go through these, you know, through these big cosmic kind of changes like we're going through now. You're going to see the old guard is going to try very hard. And whether it's business or banking, you pick it. Political, you pick whatever milieu you want to pick. They're going to try and hang on harder and harder and harder. And what's going to happen is the stakes are going to go up and up and up. But the only real solution to this is going to be a third way, a different way, a new way. You can't go backwards. Well, when you think about this concept, what what's what's the one thing you would sum it up with? When, when you think about what we've covered so far, how does it, how would you kind of, what, what's the sticker you would put on the bucket of everything we've covered for the last 20 minutes? I would say creativity is not anything special. What you have to do is look at ordinary things in a different way. And once you do that, you'll see the solution present itself. Steve Jobs put it best in his Stanford speech. Creative people always feel like they're cheating because they simply saw something in one place and applied it in another. <laughs> I love it. Well, everybody, please go to Amazon, uh, get your copy of The Creative Mindset, and, and tune in for part two of our mini-series here. Thanks, everyone.